0: Amen. How y'all doing? Doing good. Well, it's good to be here. So I got a I got a question for you. If I were to say the word apocalypse, what what meaning comes to mind, or what images come to mind? The end of the world. Yeah, right. And so one thing that's very very interesting is apocalypse is not actually an English word. It's a Greek word spelled with English letters and has made up an English word. And, and this word has taken its own meaning. And you guys are absolutely right. If you go on Google, you know, the best place to find it, Wikipedia, Google, those are your best sources, and you look it up and it says the complete and final destruction of the world. Right? Here's a problem, though if it's a Greek word spelled with English letters to make up an English word, then why won't it mean the same thing as what it means in Greek? Right? So, so we have to ask ourselves, how did this word take on a meaning that it didn't necessarily mean in the Bible? See, if you, I didn't finish the definition, but it says, as talked about in the book of Revelation, is the final part of that definition. And so even Google defines this word based on what they think the Bible says about it. But if that's not what the Bible, that word, means, then we, we, have to, we have to move forward and see what it actually means. So it means right here, it's apocalypsi. And that means to uncover or pull back the veil. So put another way, it's to see the world. Absolutely, or how God sees it. The word actually means to reveal. So why do you think the, bo- the book of Revelation is called Revelation? Because it is an apocalypse from God, a revelation from God, revealing how he sees the world, not how we see the world. Could that revelation be about the end of the world? Yes, yes. But could it also be something else? If we go to the next slide, this is our, the scripture reading that we had. And this is coming from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. It says, at at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden things from the wise and intelligent and apocalypsed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to apocalypse him. Right? It it doesn't, in this context, it doesn't mean the end of the world. What does this context mean? It means that God entrusted jesus and, and the knowledge of who jesus is not to the wise not to who you would think but to infants and if we finish that verse what we actually see what god is revealing is something very profound what god and what jesus are revealing to these infants is that come to me all who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus wants to reveal to infants is that he is not, you don't need to be a scholar in Hebrew to follow him. His yoke, which is his teaching... It's not heavy. A lot of these rabbis, our yoke was really heavy. But what Jesus says is, my yoke is light. I will give you rest. That's what I want to reveal to you. So what does that mean? That means that we have to take a step back sometimes and look at what God is revealing to us throughout the Bible. See, we're going to be in a passage that can sometimes be really, really scary to look at. I joked with my wife, I said, man, they always leave me with the really hard ones. But what I think God wants to apocalypse to us, right, I can use that word because we described what it means, is something deeper than just a road map to the end of the world. I think that when we look and we read certain passages in the Bible and we look at it and we try to mark where we're at on the roadmap to the end of the world, we miss out on the context that it's in, and we miss out on the point that God is making to the people he wrote it to. And if we look at these passages as a road map to the end of the world, one thing that we oftentimes do is we're so scared of them that we don't read them altogether. Because we're confused by them. And yet, if God's Bible is one big apocalypse, one big viewing of the world through God's eyes, then there shouldn't be a a point in there where we're like, I don't want to read that because that's scary. We're not going through the entire book of Revelation today. We're not even going into the book of Revelation. That is its own apocalypse, maybe in the fall for Bible study. We'll we'll talk about it later. But right now we are in the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, we see one of these moments that people have just been afraid of and afraid to teach. And I think God has something very profound to reveal to us. I think God's apocalypse is not that he is a vengeful, wrathful God, but that he is a God who it says come who are weary come who need rest does that mean that the bible doesn't have any judgment absolutely not there is times in the bible where judgment happens because they are in there are people who are in rebellion against god and yet our god is not a wrathful god as much as god, our god is a god who loves the sinner, and loves the rebel. Right? We talked about that a few months back in Exodus chapter 34. So, let's pray and let's open up one of these passages that sometimes we just skim over because it's a little hard to understand. And we pray that God reveals it to us. Dear Lord, the promise that we read here in Matthew was that you will reveal To those who are humble, like infants, more than those who think themselves as wise. So Lord, I pray this morning that you reveal to us as if we were infants. Lord, take our preconceived notions that we think we know and show us what you really want to apocalypse to us. You are the great revealer. And so we thank you for that. And we trust that you will work this morning. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. And if you guys were here last week, Pastor Ken went through um, went to the beginning of 21. And in the beginning of 21, there's this story of a scene that's kind of going down in the temple where God approves of this woman's small gift because her heart's in the right place and then intrinsically kind of disapproves of like the showy gifts. So one thing that we have seen through the last few chapters of, of Luke is we've seen this idea that something in the temple is really wrong. Right, like something going on in this temple is not good. It doesn't, sometimes it tells you plainly what's going on, and sometimes it, it leaves us to try to figure out and decipher what's going on. But one thing that we know is this religious system that is going on in Jerusalem is broken. It's a religious system that cares more about the outside cleanliness than it does about the heart. It's a system that cares more about the rich than it does the poor, And it is a system that is broken. And one thing that we have seen from God as Jesus goes in there and just throws the money changers' tables and just cleans out the temple is one thing we see is that God does not approve of this temple. And guess what? That's not the first time it's happened. See, about 700 years, 600 years before that, 650 Same thing happened. God didn't approve what was going on in the temple and God said, there's judgment coming on this people, this temple, because your religious system is broken. And guess what? I think God in this time is saying, it's going to happen again. Because this religious system is not for what Jesus said. See, Jesus says true religion or Jesus says that He cares about the lowly. He cares about the poor. He cares about those who are marginalized. And that's not what the religious system cares about. And so Jesus, so that's where we enter in this story here. So if we look here in Luke chapter 21, verse 5, there's a dialogue that's going on. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he, being Jesus, said, These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. I have a picture here of a, a model. This There's no photography back then, but of what they think the temple would have looked like. And from the bird's eye view, it's kind of hard to tell the, the, the size of it. But let me give you a little picture. What they think this temple, they think this temple, some of the stones weighed 4 million pounds. Like, they have, they do not know exactly how Herod got these stones into place. With all of the modern technology that we have, it would be challenging to build this temple, and yet it's there. So imagine standing by a stone that weighs four million pounds. That is probably the size, at least, of this wall—like one stone, like the, the height of this wall. What, what, what conversation are you going to have as you walk by it? Hey, Jesus, look at this! Look at this stone! How did they do that? This is amazing, Jesus. There's a historian from that time. His name is Josephus. If you ever hear anyone talk about the history of Jerusalem or that, they're probably borrowing from Josephus because he was the historian of that day. He, he lived after the temple was destroyed, but he, he'll write about it, and he is one of the main sources that people use. So Josephus says this. The gate opening into the temple was completely overlay with gold, as was the hole around it. It had above it golden vines from which hung grapes, grape clusters as tall as a man. There was a grape cluster as tall as I was made of solid gold. It had golden doors, 55 cubits high, which is 75 feet tall, and 16 broad or 24 feet broad. Before these hung a veil of equal length of Babylonian tapestry with embroider- embroidery of blue and fine linen of scarlet, also purple, wrought with marvelous skills. That's what Josephus describes a temple as. It is. It was up there in one of the seven marvel- marvels of the world. And so what if... You're part of a religious system that that is very proud of this building. This conversation shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, look at how amazing this temple is. Jesus, isn't it beautiful? And yet, what does Jesus say? That the temple is going to be destroyed. In AD seventy, so probably about forty years after this conversation, the Romans destroy that temple. And I told you how people don't understand, don't fully know, even to this day, how they built this temple. People still don't understand fully how they destroyed this temple either, but they did it. They destroyed this temple, and Jesus' words are true, that those stones are not standing, that they are rubble. You can go right now to Jerusalem, and you can see rubble that has been there for 2,000 years because Rome desecrated this place. And now to a Jewish reader, to a Jewish audience, when they heard Jesus say that, they equate the destruction of the temple also with the end of the world. So for them, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, was equivalent with Armageddon, or as we would say, the apocalypse, right? And so we continue to read with that framework in mind. Could you imagine being a Jew, growing up, and what the temple was for you was not just a beautiful building, though it was a very beautiful building. But this was the place to where you could meet your God. Where you could walk and talk with God. It it is the Eden of their day. It is supposed to represent Eden. It's supposed to represent a place where they could meet with God. And what Jesus is saying is it's going to be destroyed. Because your religious system, that the image of that religious system is that temple, you are supposed to go there and be with God. And what you're actually doing is you're oppressing people. That you, instead of going to worship God, you go there and you worship yourselves. You worship your riches. You worship all of the gold that you see, but you do not know the God of the Bible. And therefore, you will face judgment. You will face condemnation, Israel, because you forgot your God. That's what Jesus says. In those words, that's what Jesus says. So we keep reading and we see what he means. Teacher, they ask him. So, when will these things happen? And what will be a sign when these things are about to take place? What are the questions that we all, that a lot of us have? When will will the end of the world happen? And what are the signs that are going to take place? See, they kind of, they, they, in their mind, they're like, all right, you're saying this is the end of the world. You're saying that this is, when's it going to happen, Jesus? And what sign should we be looking for? This is what Jesus says. Watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come In my name, saying, I am he. And the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first. But the end will not come right away. So if we look at history, These things come to pass. If we look, there's people who are in Jerusalem and they're saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. Guess what? Rome is not going to take over. Rome is not going to destroy our city. Rome is not going to destroy the temple. Let's just stay here. And what Jesus is saying is, don't listen to them. Right? First of all, don't be deceived Don't follow. But what's the last one? Don't be alarmed. Why? Because what God is revealing through this whole passage, and we're going to continuously see this, we're going to see that though this is a very scary reality, though this is a really scary future for every single Jew who is hearing this, It does not catch God off guard. So you can make that statement throughout history. There are many, many times where people are in dire situations and they are alarmed by unexpected things, whether it's sickness, whether it's war, whether it's famine, whether it's natural disaster, but the truth still stands. Don't be alarmed. This didn't take God by surprise. So this is where we can start to get kind of looking for in our own day is this happening? Right? We're like, oh, well, Jesus says we gotta we got to keep an eye out for a false teacher who comes by, but guess what? History is full of false teachers who come by and say there's something. Maybe we need to watch out for wars and rebellions and guess what? History is full of times of war and rebellion. But what is the the resounding truth regardless of when the end times? Because my What I want you to do as we read this passage is I don't want you to try to roadmap when it's going to happen, but I want us to trust in a God who is in control. Right? There is a God who has an end to this age in his mind, and we serve him. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to try to look at the news and see if that's where we're at. Because God knows, and we still have a mission, and we're called not to be alarmed. So God, or Jesus' call to these Jews who were his disciples, a lot of people believe, because if you look at the Matthew section of this, it specifically says disciples. In Luke it doesn't, but I'm going to make an assumption say he's talking to his followers and what he wants his followers to know is there's some crazy stuff that's about to happen. Your world is going to be rocked. The world as you know it is about to come to an end. But what don't be alarmed. I got this. Right? I got this. Just you still do you. Now don't follow anyone else who says he has it. They're going to come don't follow anyone who says, keep this religious system because God is approving of how we're doing things because God is not approving of our religious system. But if you trust me, if you know who I am, if you follow me, we, don't be alarmed, right? But we keep reading. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom And there will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights from heaven. How many of you guys, during the COVID pandemic, heard people talk about, we're here. We're here. Right? There's a plague that's happening. There's sickness. People are dying. And I'm going to say again, I don't know when the end is coming. But the point of Jesus' words is not to try to figure it out. See, what happened when people called, whether it was the COVID pandemic or Y2K, regardless of when they said that the end of the world was going to happen, the next day the world kept going. And what they did because they wanted to prophesy, because they wanted themselves to look like they knew something, that they had this great revelation, it hurt people because they look and say, that God was wrong. Right? Jesus says, don't don't do that. There's going to be things that happen. But you may be asking, why why would Jesus talk about this earthquake and and things like that? That's, That's really weird, Jesus. And yet if you know... Your Old Testament, which the people he's talking to did, it's not weird at all. The next slide is, a, is from Isaiah. And he says, your many foes will be like dust, and many of the ruthless like blowing chaff. Then suddenly, in an instant, you will be punished by the Lord of armies with thunder, earthquake, loud noise, storm, tempest, and a flame of consuming fire. And all many nations go out to battle against Ariel. All the attackers, the siege works against her. And those who oppress her will be like a dream, a vision and a night. It will be like a hungry one who dreams he is eating, then he wakes and is still hungry. And like a thirsty one who dreams he is drinking, then wakes and is still thirsty, longing for water. So it will be for all the nations who go against, against Mount Zion in battle. See, what is, what is Isaiah talking about? Isaiah is prophesying about the first destruction of Jerusalem. And how do they, how does Isaiah use it? What language does he use? He uses this natural disaster language, even though we know that it wasn't a natural disaster that still that destroyed Jerusalem. It was the Babylonian army. So I think Jesus is using this language in the exact same way that Isaiah did. He's saying that natural disaster, God, the heavens will come down and there will be earthquakes and fire and storm. And yet I think that represents Rome coming and destroying the temple. Because earlier on in the Bible, it represented Babylon coming on and destroying the temple. So there will be judgment on evil systems on evil religious systems like what was going on in Jerusalem. Though they knew who the real God was, they did not know him. And they did not treat people as they should treat them as God commanded them to. And so what Jesus is saying here is I don't think Jesus is necessarily talking about the end of the world as much as Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says that these religious systems, this religious system, this temple that you look at, it'll be destroyed. Is that a foreshadowing to the end of the world? Absolutely. Is the end of the Bible about God bringing justice on corrupt systems? Absolutely. Is it what it's talking about in this moment? I don't think so. And that's okay. And so Jesus says that, and now we jump in to the the longest part here, where Jesus tells his followers what to expect. And again, this is where we can get kind of weird. He's about to talk about persecution. And I actually listened to a sermon today. This week, and the guy I was talking. He's like, "You know what? I think persecution's coming to America because it says it's going to come." And I'm not arguing that persecution may come to America. What I'm saying is, if you think that we're that America is the center of the Bible, and that persecution in the world's not happening until it happens in America, I think you're wrong. And what we see here is that persecution is going to come to his followers. But look at what the purpose of that persecution is. Verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Who is he talking to? His disciples, his followers, he's foreshadowing, telling them what they can expect. they will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons and will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Is that a a principle that overarches history? Yes. When we suffer, we can bear witness. But think about this in this context. If judgment is coming on Jerusalem, if judgment is coming on the temple, and then he says before the bad things happen, you're going to be persecuted for the reason of bearing witness to the Jews. The Jews are about to suffer a great punishment from God, and your persecution by them will be a witness to them to where you may be able to show them Jesus. See what we see in the entire book of Acts is this happen that the disciples are persecuted. That the disciples are thrown in prison, they're brought before synagogues, they're brought before governors, they're brought before kings. And every single time they bear witness of who Jesus is. And I and there's there's historical like like Paul becomes a Christian because of seeing Jesus on his way to persecute Christians, but I'm sure there's also others who who saw who saw the testimony of the persecuted church and followed Jesus because of it and escaped the disaster that was coming them. <laughs> See, I think this is a historical thing, talking about Jerusalem, and yet I absolutely think this holds true. That there are people that we come in contact with that are heading towards destruction. That God will judge those who are against them. And sometimes by our suffering, get to see Jesus. There's a story of a woman named Corey Tenboom. You ever heard of Corey Tenboom? She was a Dutch woman who, during the Nazi occupation, would hide Jews in her house. And she was caught, sent to a Nazi ch- concentration camp. I believe her father and brother or, and sister died there and there was a guard who was evil at this concentration camp and many years later she's speaking about what god has done about what the move like the work that god has done through her suffering and that guard comes up to her and he said i'm sorry god got a hold of my heart and i'm sorry And she had to make a decision in that moment, is she going to forgive him? And she does. And yet, what do we see? We see that through that persecution, through that pain, God used it. And I think, though this is a historical thing, that this is for the disciples who are about to face persecution, persecution. By the Jews. That rings true for us, and and I don't want to be naive. Like we don't face that as much, but there are many places across the world where when they say that pers- when you say something to them, like "Hey, persecution's coming," they'll laugh at you because persecution's been there. When we view ourselves as the center, and we think, "Oh, down the line, persecution's going to come." We can talk to our other Christian brothers across the world and say, persecution's already here. And it's been here since Jesus left. But what, can, what is the thing that can happen through persecution is God can use it to be a witness. I think that's what he's talking about here. We keep reading here in verse 14. It says, therefore, make up your minds not to prepare words. Prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Don't plan on what you're going to say in moments of persecution. Just trust that God is going to be faithful. Now, what that doesn't mean is that doesn't mean I should stand up here and not prepare. Right? Like, we, we read our Bible, we, we do what we can, but don't stress trying to know all the right words because in that moment, God will speak on behalf of his people. And again, we see that in the book of Acts. See, like, Luke wrote this, and he describes everything he's about to write in the next book. Right? Like, this is talking about the disciples, and yet we can still use it today. You will even be betrayed by your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair on your head will be lost. By your endurance, will gain by your endurance, gain your life. I don't love how that translation reads it. The NIV says, I guess I didn't write it down, but. uh, Oh, right here. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. If the disciples stand up in this persecution, they're going to experience a life that is much greater than this religious system they found or what Judaism offered them. They're going to find life in Jesus. Jesus. And what what reveals it, though, is this persecution. So what what does Jesus say? What does he focus the most amount of time on how do we know that this is true? Is they're going to hate you, disciples. You're going to find out that everything I say is true because they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. And look what Hebrews chapter 11 says. We have, yep. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the raging fires, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. And that sounds great, right? If you read Hebrews chapter 11, you You read this hall of faith and all these great things that people did in the name of Jesus. And then we get to the last part, and it isn't as fun to read. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourging, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sought into, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. That's what Jesus is saying to his followers, that you will find a life through endurance that the world is not worthy of. You will find a life, you will gain a life through going through things on this earth that you have not experienced before. Don't focus on when the temple is going to get destroyed. Don't focus on when the end of the age is going to come. Focus on me because I will give you life even in the midst of persecution. You can talk and argue till you're blue in the face about when it's going to happen, but that's not the point. The point is to trust in me, and I will give you life. See, all these things were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. See, they died before they saw the promise of Jesus. They're talking about the people in the Old Testament, the prophets, who lived before, since God had provided something better for us, though, See, we understand who Jesus is. We know what our reward is so that they would not be made perfect without us. It's all of us that make up the church. And then we jump back and into more of this language of destruction. Destruction. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, again, I I actually think it's literally talking about Jerusalem, says it, then recognize that the desolation has come near. When you see armies around Jerusalem, yeah, it's about to be under attack. That's a good sign. What's the sign that they should be looking for? Armies surrounding it. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Do not trust. The false prophets who say, go into the city and fight. Get out of there. This is very practical, by the way. Because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all things that are written. Woe to the pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. They will be killed by the sword and led. Captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem be trampled by Gentiles until the dime of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's this idea in the Bible called the day of the Lord. If you read the Old Testament, all a lot of the prophets talk about this idea of the day of the Lord. And what the day of the Lord is, is a judgment on evil nations. Is, is there a final day of the Lord where the whole world will be judged by because they're evil nations? Yes. But there's also a bunch of little day of the Lords all throughout the Old Testament where God's judgment is revealed. We see one, two books of the Bible in. Egypt experiences a day of the Lord when God comes down and afflicts them with great plagues to save his people. And then... We see another day of the Lord when God judges Egypt, or Israel, just like he had judged Egypt. We actually go to the book of Amos. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, there's a day of the Lord right here. And it says, woe to you, who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? See, Israel longed for God to judge what they thought were their enemies. And yet what Amos is saying is don't long for the day of the Lord because the judgment's coming against you, Israel. It'll be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light? Do not wait for the day of the Lord. Even gloom without any brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts. See, their feasts are what they were commanded to do. It was a part of their religious system, and God hates it if their heart is not right. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like a river and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Sakuth, your king, and Kawan your star god, Images you have made for yourselves, so I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord said, the Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. What Amos is saying is, you want justice to be brought on your enemies, and guess what? You've become God's enemy. Even though you do the right things, so you think. Even though you have the proper feasts, even though you make those sacrifices, even though you sing the right songs, there is no justice. There is no righteousness in your heart. Therefore, you will face the wrath of God. And look at what's happening here. That's the same thing that is happening another 600 years later. We've read about what's going on in the temple Do you think Luke just randomly put this passage in there or does it not correlate with the other passages we just read about injustice happening in the temple? The judgment of God is coming on Jerusalem. And Jesus sees it. And Jesus sees it. And yet, even that last verse, you will be, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of Gentiles is fulfilled. Even Rome is on a clock. Even the great, powerful Rome that has never lost a battle, that will not lose to Jerusalem, that will, get the, that will destroy Jerusalem, will not forever succeed because God is much greater than Rome. That one day the time for the Gentiles, the Romans, it'll be up. And we know in history that's true. The barbarians, the, 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 German, the Germanic tribes... They they destroy Rome. And then from the inside out, Rome is just, ultimately collapses. God is faithful. God is faithful. Even in a passage like this, destruction of Jerusalem. And so, Jesus is not going to be taken by surprise what's going to happen though he sees it though he sees that this religious system this corruption that's going on in, in Jerusalem in the temple this false worship of a true God see a lot of a lot of idolatry is worshiping false gods but it's just as much idolatry falsely worshiping the true God right And that's what we see. It's not that the God who resided in the temple was not powerful or not true. It's that they did not worship him properly. It's that they did not worship him and love others. They went through the motions, but justice and righteousness did not reside in their hearts. See, all the way back in in the first time the temple got destroyed was because they worshipped idols. And they put false gods in the temple. That was part of the reason, but it wasn't the only reason. They also neglected the widows, the poor, the foreigner. The second time around, there's no images in the temple. And when Rome tries to put images in the temple, they rebel. They're not going to let Rome put images in their temple, which is good. And yet they still didn't get the second part right. They still didn't understand that God cares about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. And they neglected doing justice, even though their religion from the outside looked pure. So, what does God say? Judgment is coming. We got to keep reading a little bit more. I know this is big, I'm sorry. Verse 25. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. There will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of seas and waves. Again, that is, I have it up there. That's from Joel, another perspective of the the day of the Lord. We're going to move on just for time's sake. People will faint in fear and expectation of things that are coming on the world because the powers of heaven will be shaken then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory again if you read your old testament this reference doesn't catch you off guard see what happens In Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, is when great empires are destroyed, when these beasts who are representation of these great empires, when they are brought down, it says that the Son of Man is lifted. That that son of man is coming down on a cloud and we see him for his glory. And so what is Jesus saying here when he brings up this passage from Daniel? He's saying there will be judgment on this evil corrupt system. And yet God has still not forgotten his promises that his Messiah will one day return. That I am that Messiah and I will come back for my people. I will not forget them. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. How does it end? Does it say, be afraid? But look to the heavens because your redemption is near. We're going to We're going to end here. I'm I'm landing the plane, I promise. I know it was a lot. This is a passage that in its original context does not wholly speak to the end of the world. And yet, we still can trust that our God will come back. You see how it ends? It ends with this promise that our God, that the Son of Man will return for his people, that, some, that life is not going to just get easy. He tells his disciples that you will face persecution and guess what? He tells us the same thing. I don't know when it's going to come, but I do know that it will. And I know that there are many, many Christians who live today and many, many Christians who have lived throughout history that do not have the luxury of saying what I just said. They didn't have to ask the question of when persecution will come. They know it's here. When you are hiding and doing church in your basement, because if you do it in a building with windows like this, you get put in prison. You don't have to question when it's going to come. You know it's already here. And yet that promise to us is the exact same promise that is to them, which is that God will not forget his people. That God will Have bring justice upon the corrupt systems of this world that one day God's justice will reign on this world, but so will God's mercy, and His mercy will be for those who are trusting in Him. See, Jesus is about to face everything He told the disciples, they're gonna face. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to be imprisoned. Jesus is going to stand before kings and governors and synagogues. Jesus is going to be beaten, and then Jesus is going to be hung on a Roman cross. In the same way that Jesus' death on the cross was not the final end, neither is our persecution the final end because the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same God who, who took death and made life out of death is the same God that can take life or make life out of death in the disciples. Sometimes we can read passages like this and be afraid. And I can say 100%, with 100% certainty, that the point of reading this passage is not to be afraid. The point of reading this passage is to trust that we serve a God who is in control. But then we go back to how we started. What does Jesus say about himself? See, if 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 God and Jesus revealed to us that the end will come, First, for Jerusalem, then for the world, and that He's in control. What did He reveal to us at the very beginning? What did He apocalypse to us at the very beginning? I am gentle and lowly at heart. I do not put something on you to weigh you down, but my burden is very light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christian, we can read this passage and have hope because we serve a God who is going to give us rest. Sometimes there's passages in the Bible or whole books in the Bible that we can be afraid of. I'm going to tell you, if you're afraid of something in the Bible, there's a decent chance that you don't understand it. Or you don't know Jesus, because then you should probably be afraid. But for the Christian, Jesus' word should be water to a thirsty soul, not flames. I'd be lying to you if I would tell you that there is no such thing as judgment in the Bible. We see it. This is a passage of judgment. I believe this is a passage of judgment on a specific system in a specific time, but I think it overarches to more than just that. But I think the hope for the disciple who is going to see their temple and their religious system that they grew up seeing in flames is just as applicable to us today. All right? So what do we do? Yeah, Or we just do what Jesus said already. Don't be deceived. People are going to lie to you. People are going to come to you and they're going to say, hey, I'm someone. Don't follow him. There's no more Jesus coming. Like, Jesus will come back, but then we'll know he's coming back. There's, he's not just going to appear to us and, like, don't follow anyone else. And then finally, don't be alarmed. We have hope, not fear. Don't be alarmed. We serve a God who has us in his hands, and he will not let us go. Even if we go through immense persecution, now this is more impressive for Caleb than it is for me, but even the hair on our head won't be touched. Right? He will not let us go. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for what you apocalypse to us. Lord, thank you that you reveal that you are good. And Lord, I I pray that whatever comes in the future, that we put our hope and faith in you. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.